You are listening to a special Nears.org podcast. This Christmas year-end update is brought to you commercial-free by Cowan, where their success happens when they help you outperform. Visit them at Cowan, C-O-W-E-N.com. Registration is open for our spring 2022 conference in Baltimore, Maryland, April 6th through the 8th. For all things Nears, visit us at Nears.org. Welcome, everyone. This is Dennis Wilmot on behalf of NEARS. I'm pleased to moderate this discussion today with the chairman of the Surface Transportation Board, Martin Oberman. Most people call him Marty or Mr. Chairman. We're going to have a, a conversation this afternoon or today about where things are, trying not to keep it too heavy, and we'll take it from there. So to begin with, uh, welcome, Mr. Chairman. Glad you could join us today. All right. Well, thanks, Dennis. Let me try to to be very brief. Uh, I am a a lawyer, a trial lawyer by training and practice, but I have done a number of things over my career. Uh, I practiced law at a private firm for just a short time after law school, and then I became the first general counsel to the Illinois Racing Board which is the administrative agency in Illinois, which regulates horse racing, which was an industry in great need of reform. It was uh, really had a great deal of systemic corruption, both on the political side and the drugging and fixing of racing side. Uh, and I, I, a reform board was uh, brought into power by a newly elected governor to clean up the industry. And uh, so I was part of that effort for two years. Uh, I then uh, left the racing board to run for alderman in the city of Chicago at a time when Richard J. Daly was still at the height of his power. This was in 1975, and uh, I was elected uh, and served three four-year terms and and sort of became, by default, really, because there were very few of us, one of the lead sort of anti-democratic machine reform voices in city politics. Uh, and uh, we in Chicago in that era really still had an old-fashioned democratic machine. There's nothing like it anymore. It's all sort of faded out, but it was at its, at its height of its uh, autocratic power, let's say, in the, in the 70s. Anyway, I served in the city council for 12 years, left the council, went into private practice and practiced as a trial lawyer uh, really from 1987 uh, until I basically retired in 2017. Uh, Along the way in 2013, really on the heels of another scandal, different completely at uh, Metra, which is the commuter railroad that serves northeastern Illinois, the Chicago metropolitan area, and and is the second largest commuter railroad in the country. Uh, And in 2013, half of the board of directors of Metra resigned over the uh, over the scandal. One of the vacancies was uh, filled by the mayor of Chicago under the uh, statutes governing Metra. And Rahm Emanuel was mayor at the time, and he asked me to go over and be his appointee to the Metra board. And to be frank, it wasn't because I knew anything about railroads. I live in the city. And as one of the reporters asked me when I showed up for my first board meeting. What was I doing there? I'm a bicycle commuter. And I'm still a bicycle commuter, by the way. 
And uh, my answer then, and it applies to my work at the STB, is I don't know much about railroads, but I'm a professional question asker. Um, in any event, uh, shortly after I got to the Metro board, <clears throat> the board uh, voted uh, to make me chairman. And in all honesty, I think nobody else really wanted the job that really required us to clean up the mess left over from this scandal. But uh, I served as chairman of Metro for three years and or nearly three years and then uh, ultimately left the board and was ready to retire when Dan Elliott decided to leave the Surface Transportation Board and people I had gotten to know in the rail industry suggested that maybe instead of retiring, it'd be a good place for me to to uh, serve uh, and and be try to be appointed to the board. And of course, this was when President Trump was in office. So the process really goes through the Democratic leadership in Congress for selecting uh, people to fill the vacancies for the you know the party that's out of power. The STB is like a lot of federal agencies. Uh, the statutes say that no more than a majority can be from the same party. So this vacancy was required to be filled by a Democrat. And ultimately, my name was recommended to the White House and uh, I was appointed. And then under our statutes, the uh, it, at our board, the president determines which board member will be chairman. And so the tradition over decades has been that when there's change in administration and one of the the board members from the other party becomes the chairman. So on January 20th, President Biden issued an order saying that I'm chairman. That's how I got there. Uh, so the rest is history, <laughs> or will be history soon. Well, you certainly are no novice to the political arena and all of the things that go along with that. Uh, which, uh, even though the STB is an agency of the government, it, it's definitely stuck right in the middle of a, a lot that is going on today. But I would like to take, try and take a little bit of a step back and, and look at some things historically. The Surface Transportation Board and its predecessor, the ICC, have now been around for 124 years. And... There's there Longer, have been, uh, says eight, 18, 1887. Well, maybe my math was wrong. I knew it was 87. It was yeah. 134 years. Yeah, yeah 134 yeah. years. Uh, and, and when it started, it was it kind of uh, fairly weak at the beginning. Uh, at least this is my own impression. It went through a period of a few decades of it kind of being there and not having a lot of teeth. And then some of the Congressional acts that were passed in the first couple decades of the 20th century gave it some teeth. So it started having a lot more power, uh, as did other government agencies, to combat what they saw as monopolies taking place. Not that the railroads had that at the time. <laughs> uh, another story. But uh, then it seemed to go through this uh, control stage where the railroads were so over-controlled that they, they kind of were un, unable to operate successfully or compete successfully. And then with the Staggers Act in 1980, it a little more hands-off, things were opened back up, it revitalized the industry. That led to merger mania, which happened quite a bit. And I know that's a, a, an important topic, but 
after that, we're now we're sitting in the uh, 2021 heading into 2022. And I'm just wondering from a, a historical perspective, where do you, what kind of a stage do you think the STB is in at this point in American history? It's a very good question. And it certainly has changed, I think, dramatically in just the uh, three years that I've been on the board. Uh, it's harder for me to put it in the context of all of that history, Dennis, that you recited. I'm generally familiar with it, but I've not really an expert in in all of the uh, nuances of the regulatory schemes over the last hundred uh, and thirty. What was it? What did we say? Hundred thirty-four years. Uh, certainly, uh, we just go back. Let's just say from staggers there and thereafter. But certainly, there was uh, much too much uh, overregulation. I think is a, a, a perfectly appropriate word, and, and it was stifling the industry. And the industry, there's no debate, was suffering uh, financially uh, to the point of being threatened with extinction in some cases. And uh, you know, a lot of railroads did go into bankruptcy or they merged just to try to keep their heads above water. And so those changes were very much needed. And I, I think everybody would agree that uh, the Staggers Act is an example of a government action uh, that succeeded. Uh, it succeeded in, in allowing the railroads to breathe the financial security back into their existence and to become financially healthy, which they had done over the next, let's say, 20 to 30 years. Uh, including kind of the resulting merger mania. There are those who argue that the merger mania went a little too far. Uh, I'll leave that for longer historians to analyze. But I will say that my perception is that somewhere, roughly speaking, beginning about um, uh, 15 years or so thereabouts ago, uh, the railroads, you know, they sort of solidified their operations following the merger mania in the early 2000s. <clears throat> and uh, with the with our now being reduced to only seven class one railroads, they really began to feel their oats and to start to to exercise and get the benefits of a, their very strong market positions. And, and the fact is now that in many, many parts of the United States, the railroads are effectively either monopolies or at best duopolies. Uh, and, and many types of shippers who really need to use railroads for their their business needs uh, often are in captive situations and really have no option other than one railroad. And uh, my perception, based on everything I have learned from all the stakeholders across the industry, and we can talk about that, uh, is that the pendulum uh, begun by staggers has swung somewhat too far and needs to be balanced a little bit better uh, to balance the bargaining and the leverage between uh, railroads and their customers. The, uh, and, and the STB, uh, as a successor of the ICC, while it was greatly limited in uh, its authority and powers compared to to the old ICC dates uh, during its over-regulatory period was still uh, left strongly in place by the Congress as the agency to regulate the railroads and ensure 
as much competition as possible for the marketplace, which is essential uh, to prevent uh, overuse and improper use of market power by railroads, uh, to protect the environment, protect the public interest. All of those authorities were left very strongly intact. And, and I think sometimes there's, there's a perception on both sides of the industry that, well, the STB is toothless and it's basically supposed to do nothing. And that's just not the case. Um, and uh, my view, so I think we are entering a period when you say what age are we in, uh, where I think the STB is going to have to step up to the plate. And that, I have been talking a lot about that. But having said that, my view of the appropriate role for the STB is to incentivize as much as possible the private sector to resolve its problems rather than our mandating as a government agency how much to charge, you know, to ship a carload of wheat or, or when to switch and how to switch and so forth. It's, it really is uh, the ideal way for us to proceed would be to set up and modify some of the mechanisms we have, but ultimately so that railroads and shippers are incentivized to work things out themselves. But to me, to benefit the economy and the public, there are many parts of the country where shippers need a little, the, the pendulum needs to, to swing a little more to have more of a balance between shippers and shippers power and railroads power, I guess, so that phrase it. Very, very well said. Uh, there, obviously, there has been, there's always going to be criticism. When the pendulum swings one way, the side that it's swinging away from is going to be critical. And when it's swinging in the other direction, the other side is going to be openly critical. And of course, at this point, the carriers don't like, and the AAR have expressed views that that they are, are not thrilled with this idea of uh, more what they call as being too shipper friendly, but I think you've you've laid out a good policy as to how you see the role for the STB and why that's important for the for the health of both of the all the different stakeholders in the rail industry. Uh, one of those specific items is the idea of reciprocal switching or open access. It comes in many different terms, and of course, in Canada many years ago, uh, they came up with a way to provide essentially for open switching uh, between the two primary carriers in Canada. It seems to work well for them. Uh, why do you think the U.S. carriers uh, are so opposed when the Canadian version has appears to be successful? First, let me uh, just... Um comment a little bit on the language because uh, the railroad world is not immune from some of the demagoguery and semantics that are characterizing the, the rest of our uh, our political world these days. So uh, open access to me implies no limits that wherever some one shipper wants to use a, uh, another railroad's tracks to get to a a second railroad, they just have a right to go in and do it. So nobody is talking about just an unlimited open access. There is that concept is around, and you could argue it, but that's not being promoted by anyone. Anyone, the, the railroads, of course, like to refer to the whole topic as forced switching, 
as though the government is never in the business of forcing anything like wearing seatbelts. So I I think that, you know, skews the discussion. I think competitive switching or reciprocal switching is an appropriate way to talk about it. As to why the railroads are opposed to it, and this is just an observation, it's not something I have hard evidence on, but I think anybody who's been around this industry might come to the same conclusion. I think the the class one railroads are for the most part very comfortable with their own fiefdoms and their own turf and they don't want anybody invading their turf and they, they are happy not to invade somebody else's turf. It's and I think it's in many situations where there could be much more aggressive competition, which would be good for the system. Uh, I don't see the railroads really being interested in it. They talk about it, but I don't see them acting that way in most cases. That Whenever I say that, they always come up with some anecdotal place of where they're aggressively competing. And I'm sure that's true. But as an overall business model, I, I don't see much effort to have real competition. And, and you know, when Whenever I talk about things that the board is concerned about, the the message from the railroads always is you should stay out of it and let the marketplace decide these matters. And my answer always is I agree. The marketplace should decide, but for the marketplace to decide, there has to be a market. And in too many places, there is no market. And so if we can act to simply provide more avenues for competition, then the marketplace should decide and we should stay out of it. Uh, so so that's the be- best way I could, could comment on that phenomenon. You know, we have uh, a long pending uh, rule proposal at the board. It was a, came out in 2016. It's never been finally acted on. And, and I think this is an area that we need to move on. And I have set a public hearing in the middle of March next year to really come to grips with that long pending rule and decide what, if anything, we should do with it. Does it need to be modified? Should we enact it? Should we scrap it? But I want to focus on it and and take action uh, in the right direction. And I think, by the way, the experience in Canada uh, does have less positive lessons for us. The Canadian rail network, of course, is very different from the United States. They're really only two railroads and they have a different history and a different tradition than we have but to the extent they have what they call interswitching it, it does seem to work from what i can know it's something i i intend and i think other board members as we go through this process really want to learn more about it and uh, learn what we can benefit from from the canadian experience okay thank you uh as a, you have outlined kind of the four, I think it was four different uh, areas that you believe the STB should be addressing within the rail marketplace. Uh, there are, people will identify different issues that they see that need to be resolved. Uh, from the surfboards perspective, What do you see as, you may have sort of answered this already, but I want to make sure I allow you to clarify what you see as the the primary, the top two or three issues that you're hoping the surfboard can address over the next term. 
That's a, a, a very good question because we have a huge uh, amount on our plate right now. So there are some things I'll just start. We have to address because we have statutory obligation to do so, and those are the pending matters that are brought to us. Uh, and some of those, are, I'm sure, are front and center in your listeners' minds. Where we have the CSX acquisition of Pan Am uh, that we actually uh, have a public hearing scheduled for in January. Uh, we have to deal with that. We have the uh, Amtrak Gulf Coast petition to restore passenger service on the Gulf Coast, uh, subsequent to damage from Katrina. Uh, that uh, we are required to rule on that is coming up on uh, for a public hearing in February, and, and that has major implications. And uh, passenger rail is something that's very high in my list of priorities that needs to be promoted and protected in this country, um, and. Uh, so, and then we, of course, have the CPKCS merger, which will take the better part of next year to process. It's a, these, we, you know, we haven't had a class one merger situation in over 20 years, and these uh, legal proceedings are extraordinarily complex because of the details of all the places where these railroads are going to start operating differently because of the merger, and they all have to be examined. So those things are very much on our agenda, which we have to handle, and they will have important ramifications. Having said that, in terms of the areas that I want the board to uh, be active in and get resolved, to me, the overarching concern with the rail industry right now, and I've spoken about it a lot, is the continuing pressure from Wall Street on uh, railroad, on class one management to cut costs, cut costs, cut costs, to drive down the operating ratio and drive up the stock price, regardless of what that may be doing to service and to the benefits, ultimately to the public, of having a really robust national rail network. I think the rail network is going in the wrong direction because of these constant insistence on cost cutting. And uh, there's not a lot that the board can do directly about that. We don't have the authority, nor, nor do I think we should be saying, well, railroads, here's how many uh, uh, engineers and conductors you should be employing. Uh, what we can and do have an obligation to deal with is good service. And so if cutting all these employees has hurt service, it is our role to say, well, whatever it takes, you need to be improving your service metrics. So if that means hiring people back, hire people back, but, but deliver what you're supposed to deliver. I think a lot of this can and should be covered by the common carrier doctrine. And it's something I really want the board to find time to look at. It's, it's hard to take on these big, broad uh, concerns when we have all these other big cases pending. Uh, but I think it's conceivable to think about the, the board ruling on cases involving the common carrier doctrine uh, in a way that says that railroads have to live up to better service than they're providing now and 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 move the railroads in that direction and away from from all these uh, last six, seven years pressures from Wall Street. So to me, that is an overarching aspect. And I do worry 
and it's about the long-term impact on the health of the rail network if we just keep stripping it down to the bare minimum. I mean, we saw as a result of the pandemic that when you're operating, as I've said, without a backup quarterback and then a reasonable number of folks get infected or quarantined or furloughed, uh, service really takes a dive. And we're still seeing the impacts of it in many of the railroads across the network. So it's, uh, it's having an impact. And while the pandemic may be unusual, we, we have things that interrupt rail service all the time that we know are going to keep happening. Polar vortexes, forest fires, floods. We've had a lot of that this year. And every time that happens, the railroads need more resources to, to, to do what they're supposed to do. And they try hard to do it, but they've sort of disarmed themselves by eliminating a lot of their own resources. So that, that is a great concern of mine. Um, it's hard to define exactly what we're going to do about it, except keep keep our eye on it, keep the pressure on, and as I said, maybe see if cases involving the common carrier doctrine may help flesh out better service standards. The uh, the other two areas that are clearly on our plate, and I would like to see us make progress on or one what we were just talking about the rule 711 reciprocal switching proposal and the rate reform proposals which we issued just last month uh, providing for either a voluntary arbitration program or the final offer program or both uh, and those are are under consideration right now to finally I hope provide in one way or another, a much more accessible, reasonable, affordable, and timely rate review mechanism for shippers. And I think that would greatly help, particularly in areas where shippers are captive and they can't, they don't have much bargaining power. Otherwise, they need a rate relief mechanism. Uh, there are a number other of other issues in front of us. Uh, one of the ones that I think has great potential to ferret out some of these issues as is a request we received o- over a year ago that the board do much more uh, measuring and gathering of metrics uh, for first mile, last mile service. And it turns out, uh, and that's something I think that could and should be extremely important and useful to uh, all stakeholders, rail and shipper alike, uh, the measuring of first mile, last mile service turns out when you really try to think about, well, how do we gather metrics to be really complex because there's so many permutations and combinations all over the country about how rail customers get their first mile, last mile service. There's just not a one-size-fits-all metric. So we put out a request for information a few weeks ago, and I'm anxiously looking forward to all the input I hope we're going to get from the industry as to what, how best to deal with that. But I I think if we come up with a a good way to measure first mile, last mile service and start requiring it, if if that's the board's choice, I think shining a light on it will help improve it. So I'm and and from my seat, first mile, last mile service is what we get a lot of complaints about from the shipping world. Yeah, certainly it's it's interesting that you highlight service overall and then first mile first mile last mile of course that's part of the overall service and the carriers would not disagree of course they would say their focus is on improving their service 
I, I know I have been to many different conferences in the last dozen years where that term first mile, last mile has been on a lot of, a lot of presentations from rail executives that they're fully aware of it. They know how important it is, but how change can be brought forward on it is another thing. And when you talk about the, the various metrics, uh, they, it's, it is a real challenge in, from my perspective uh, to get good standardized metrics from the carriers because some of the metrics today, for example, about speed or dwell time, uh, velocity or dwell time, those can be manipulated, if you will. Uh, cars that move through a yard, a yard can look really good if it moves cars through the yard quickly, but that doesn't always mean they're going to move more quickly from origin to final destination. It just means there's a good velocity while they're moving. But we've seen plenty of cars that take a very circuitous route because they're, they want to just keep them moving. Uh, there, is, there is value in that, in having the fluidity of the network, but it can also distort those statistics uh, that you look at for, for measuring uh, service and particularly, as you know, first mile, last mile. So I'm sure that there's not a, a shipper, a rail shipper who will listen to this podcast who will not agree 100% of the importance of improving, measuring, and finding ways to collectively work together uh, to, to help improve that. And it does take a collective. Well, as, as I began to reflect not long after I got to the board, you know, the carriers come in to meet with board members and shippers do too frequently and whenever the carriers come in they're they're quick to say look at how good our velocity and dwell times are and after hearing that a few times i finally realized it wasn't really enlightening me and i finally said to one railroad representative i said well i assume your trains are going 55 miles an hour across montana or wyoming someplace that's good but when did the customer get his car that's what i want to know because that's what I hear about. Uh, and um, I, I've learned a lot more about that over, over the last three years of the need to really to really have. I mean, the, the goal is not just to measure it, of course. It's to have more reliable and predictable first-mile, last-mile service. I mean, what, what I hear, Dennis, and is a really great concern in the long term to me, is more and more from the shipping industry of shippers – saying they're just giving up on rail, that they're locating new facilities. They're not locating on rail lines anymore, or they don't care. They're more interested in highway accessibility. And that's not good for the economy, and it's sure not good for the environment or for the highways, for that matter. Uh, and I think rail, by some of its inability to be more custom or unwillingness, not inability, it has a great ability. I just wish they'd use it. The interest in not being more customer-centric may begin to permanently lose certain traffic to rail, which ought to be on rail, and that's not good. So uh, uh, that's just my, part of my long-term concern about what needs to happen in the industry. And one of the things that makes the U.S. rail network and actually the entire North American rail network so unique is it is one system that operates together and any chink in the armor, any break in the chain, 
uh, will have the ripple effect across the entire network. So individual carriers can improve some things, but if the entire network isn't improved, then it, it can lead to slower progress at, at minimum. Uh, when we talk about metrics and things that we can use to uh, find ways to improve, one of the big topics out there today, of course, is they kind of go together, technology and automation. Uh, where do you see, where does the surfboard see this role of automation within the rail industry heading? And is that good or bad? Well, we really haven't, I haven't personally anyway, focused on automa automation. I think it's somewhat more into the future. Uh, obviously, automation will present uh, serious concerns for the FRA from the safety side of it. Uh, so that's not something that's been very high up on my consciousness level, only because I'm filled up with, with everything else. Technology, I think, though, is, we hear about that a lot, and I think there is a lot of good that is coming, as some of which has already arrived. Uh, I'd like to see far more transparency using existing technology, just not being applied across the entire supply chain. But one of the things I, I was impressed with early on this past year as the supply chain problems really became acute was the lack of transparency from factories in Asia all the way through to BCOs in the United States. Uh, railroads don't have transparency into ocean carriers uh, or ports. And ocean carriers don't know what's going, don't always have transparency to the railroads. The chassis folks don't have transparency throughout the system. And everybody could have complete transparency with the, uh, you know, with existing technology, if all the parts of it would just agree to work together. Uh, the other areas of technology that I've been impressed with are some of these track monitoring and car monitoring devices, NS, you know, has rail pulse and very impressive about the ability to track where cars are, to track defect, uh, keep track of defects in the rail bed and so forth. It's um, very impressive. And I think that all will benefit the system. So I look forward to that. I certainly would be remiss if I didn't ask a question about specific rail mergers. Of course, you mentioned both the CSX Pan Am and the CPKS KCS uh, mergers coming up next year uh, soon. Uh, most of the time when this question is asked, I've asked this question myself of panelists, said, do you think we'll see another class one merger, assuming the KCCPS merger is approved? And I think many people think it will be. Beyond that, is it going to be over the next decade or so a a strong disability, or I'm not sure how to characterize it? Uh, is it possible that we could see another merger, or is it going to be a real strong challenge to make for somebody to make that happen? Do you think? Well, I can't go too far into that, obviously, because to some degree uh, that requires me to observe my views on the current pending mergers, which I course, cannot do. Let me, uh, 
let me just answer it very broadly. In my view, the need to preserve and enhance and promote and have more competition in the rail industry it would be paramount in considering any merger. We, and the public interest must be taken into account. The one thing I can say, if you haven't or your readers or your listeners haven't read it, is to read the decision we issued on the CN Voting Trust because we talked at some length, gave us an opportunity under the new merger rules to talk somewhat about the uh, public interest uh, mandate that we have to consider, in my view. So I think if you think about the need for competition in the railroad, and that in my in my view anyway, competition is almost always in, in, in the public interest, it's hard to imagine in this industry now when it wouldn't be, the question may answer itself. I don't think I should go much beyond that. I can't say that there may not be requests for more class one mergers, but they, any such request would really have to be evaluated intensely in, in these areas. And uh, I'll just leave it at that. I think it should be sort of obvious what the conclusion might be. Fair enough. Thank you for answering that question. And it was a, it's a sticky wicket there. Uh, yeah. Private equity investors have become more and more involved in the rail industry, particularly within the short lines, but not limited to that. Uh, there is a perception that the SP has a negative view of private equity investors. Is that accu an accurate perception? Uh, how can you comment on that? Yeah, I think it is not an accurate perception because uh, well, private equity to me is a pretty broad category. You know, some people use it to mean hedge funds and so forth, or activist investors like TCI, as it got involved with the CN and so forth. But really, I mean, if you own stock in a company, it may just be an individual. I think you're private equity. So uh, I don't think private equity as a broad category is either a good thing or a bad thing. Uh, I do think that the pressure that some types of investors have been putting on the railroads that we've been talking about at some length has been not productive for the rail industry and for the public interest. But I wouldn't uh, just cast a broad uh, characterization of private equity as being good or, or bad. Listen, this is a capitalist uh, society and a capitalist economy, which I am a part of and totally committed to. So I, I wouldn't want to say we don't want uh, people to have stock in railroads. We absolutely need stock owners in railroads. But railroads are not like all other industries. They are imbued with a public interest because they are so crucial to our economy. And they are uh, regulated, unlike many other businesses. And so private investors have to take that into account when they invest. Yeah. And by the way, they're doing fine. Yeah. <laughs> if you look at the numbers that I've talked about, they're doing fine. Yeah, that's a pretty uh, successful industry at this point. And when you look at the, yes. the financials anyway. Yep. Uh, so over the last three years, you've been on the STB and, and you've been chairing now for a while. Uh, 
would you like to tout any success you think that has been something you hoped would happen that has actually seen progress from the STB? Yes, I think it's actually been a, an extraordinarily productive year. If you consider what this year has been like compared, we talked previously about the history of it. This is the first time uh, since the ICC days when uh, the ICC was a much bigger entity that the STB has been operating with a full force of five members and they're terrific group, by the way, of, of people on the board, really thoughtful, independent thinkers and hard workers. And uh, we've been faced with challenges that the STB hasn't dealt with in a long time. The mergers we've talked about, particularly the class ones, as new to most people at this board, uh, including most staff, I mean, a few old timers, because that hasn't been considered in 20 years. And we've issued some really difficult and productive and thoughtful decisions. Difficult in terms of analysis because they're new. I don't mean difficult in terms of the outcome. Uh, we've had to deal with the pandemic, the supply chain crisis, uh, just a, a number of challenging issues. And I think we've handled them all very successfully. The initiatives that we've talked about, like rate reform and reciprocal switching, are moving forward. They All rulemaking at the federal level is time-consuming, and I think we're on a good path and an uh, efficient one, and I feel good about that. So I, I think we're moving in a positive direction. I don't look at it as putting a notch in our belts that we accomplished X or accomplished Y, but it's just the whole direction of how the board's been functioning. And, and, and we we have just a really first-rate staff, Dennis, it's, uh, and they're, uh, they're experienced, they're knowledgeable, they're very smart and very hardworking, and they've had to work very hard this past year, and I'm very proud of them. Well, certainly I think uh, everyone would agree that the, the everyone wants a healthy uh robust, successful rail industry, because it's, it's important for all of us. And, and I hear in all of the things that you're saying that that is what you are seeking as well. Uh, but you are also making sure that there is the proper balance so that a, a successful rail industry doesn't just mean good financials for the rail carriers. It means a, a business that is actually providing real value to its customers and is uh, is providing the service defined as every component and feature. When I think of rail service, I think of not just trains running down the track and switching out shippers and, and customers, but I think of the service you get from the accounting department, the service you get from customer service, and all of those things have had have been significantly impacted by COVID because most, if not all the class ones still have many departments working from home. And in some cases, salespeople, for example, field sales, they've been working from home off or from remote offices for a long time, many of them from their homes. And that seems to work very successfully. But other groups that are more of the administrative and the customer service, accounting, that are still working from home without the ability to collaborate and work together, I, we have seen significant negative impacts uh, because of working in a spread out fashion. So 
Uh, I know that is not the role of the CERC board to necessarily address that, but I'm merely adding a commentary that service from the shipper's viewpoint goes well beyond uh, purely the operation of the railroad itself. I would, I would add a couple of things. One, uh, I do think the railroads now currently do provide real value. My frustration is that I think they could be providing, could be providing a lot more value. And when I think of service, it's not only what you've talked about and particularly delivering a car when you say you're going to deliver it, but I think of it and what I have learned more and more is that the railroads, I would like to see the railroads be more aggressive and creative partners with their customers. How do we get more of your stuff on rail? How do we help you grow your business, which will then produce more business for us on our rail? Rather than we're running our trains, you take it or leave it kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think I think with the advent, I mean, everybody focuses on PSR. PSR has its good and bad parts. I don't particularly denigrate PSR, but I do think that the there needs to be more of an affirmative partnership attitude between railroads and, and shippers. And I think that seems to be what I have learned from talking to railroad people, retired, current rail exec- executives, shippers, rail labor, is that there seems to have been a great shift away from really being customer centric over the last six or seven years and just looking at the bottom line and and running its trains on a schedule whether that serves the customer's best needs or not and so that's the direction i'd like to see the railroads moving in and because i think that's what they're going to have to do to grow uh from a shipper's point of view and your your listeners and members would know this better than than i do if you aren't getting the attention from the railroad and you've got to get your stuff from here to there, you might say, well, I'll just use truck. And uh, I think that's happening too often. Well, I, I think you've wrapped up our discussion perfectly with that, with those uh, last comments. I don't, I'm sure there is not a shipper that will listen who will disagree. Hopefully the railroads will also dis, uh, will also agree that in the end, when they, entire industry, the entire marketplace is working together and growth occurs, then everybody benefits. So uh, I appreciate that. I want to thank you for your time and your excellent feedback. It's, uh, I'm sure NEARS will, the NEARS listeners will benefit and we look forward to further conversations.